y'all. Hope you're enjoying our fall weather. Yes? It is great. We've enjoyed it sitting outside and not sweating. Um, we, uh, last, I guess about middle of the summer, we started a series on the parables of Jesus. Um, I shared with you last week, the last couple of weeks, I was bringing those to a, a timeout or a pause, if you would. Um, and then we're going to pick those parables back up. Uh, so this Sunday we're starting something new. And then uh, we'll pick those parables back up at the end of Matthew's gospel. At the first of the year, uh, Jesus begins to share a whole bunch of parables about the end of the age. And so we'll look at some of that. Um, today we start a new series called Ecclesiastes. Um, and so it's based on the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along with us on the screen, however you want to do that. Um, before we get into our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to give you just a little bit of introduction to the book, if I may. Um, first, the word Ecclesiastes, kind of a strange word, right? Not one that you run into anywhere other than, I believe, in the Bible. And so I've got a slide here that shows you kind of the progression of how the book of Ecclesiastes came about its title. Um, it starts with the Hebrew, so the, we're reading in the Old Testament here, this is written in Hebrew, and the term in Hebrew is actually, the original title was Kohelet, um, and then that was translated into Greek in the th- year around 3rd BC, um, and what's called the Septuagint, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and that's Ecclesiastes, and then that was transliterated, in other words, written in its phonetic form, uh, into the Latin term Ecclesiastes. Now, we have a word in our English language that's very close to that Latin rendering of Ecclesiastes, and it's the word ecclesiastical or ecclesiastic, and it refers to the clergy. Um, this word is actually, uh, when it's translated from Hebrew into English, is actually the word preacher, okay? So that's what the title of the book is. It comes from the opening lines of the book of Ecclesiastes where it says the words of the Kohelet or the words of the preacher, that's where it all kind of comes back to. There's a word in Greek that you may be familiar with. That's the word ekklesia. Perhaps you've heard that word before. Um, and it translates in, in the New Testament as the word assembly or church. And so it's the gathering of the people of God. And so the ecclesiastes is the person who stands before the people, who ministers to the people, who proclaims God's words to the people. And so you can see how all this kind of runs together. So there you go. Um, the the book of Ecclesiastes also, uh, actually the, the original meaning of the word uh, kohelet, it translates as preacher. Many of your uh, translations of may say teacher. But actually in English, the actual word that it comes to is the word collector. This is a person who collects not things but ideas. And they sit with those ideas and they ponder those ideas, many of them being God's ideas here. And then they share with the ecclesia or with the gathering of the people of God um, the, uh, what, what, what their findings were, what God had to say or what God thinks. Again, in our cultural context, we would call such a person as a preacher. Now, what we run into when we get into Ecclesiastes are not the typical stuff that comes from the mouth of a preacher. Typically, we would expect when we come in here to hear words that are edifying, words that are encouraging. But when you read Ecclesiastes, you go, this guy is horribly depressed. Right? I mean, this is, the, this is the Eeyore of the Bible. That's kind of how the way this reads. Uh, this, fe- this fella is horribly pessimistic about life. And so you'll get a sense of some of that. And so part of the reason why I share this with you is to pre- prepare you for the shock, if you would, of what you're about ready to read. And Because a lot of the perspective that is shared here um, in Ecclesiastes, at least in the first 10 chapters, it's not until we get to chapters 11 and 12 that the author launches into more of what we call a biblical worldview. The first 10 chapters, 
chapters this very secular worldview. It's the author looking out across the horizon of life and going, I'm trying to find meaning and I'm trying to find purpose and I'm trying to find answers to the ultimate questions of life by looking at the world around me rather than looking to the vertical relationship. So he's not engaging theology in the first 10 chapters. He's actually engaging what we would call philosophy, which is the thoughts and the, the opinions and the ideas that man has produced himself, human reasoning. And so that's a lot of what we get when we get into the book of Ecclesiastes. You say, then why is any of this even in the Bible, right? I don't know, maybe you've already thought that as I've been talking here this morning, and perhaps you've read a little, a little bit ahead and you wondered to yourself, why is this in the Bible? It doesn't sound like anything else that I ever read in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, shouldn't we follow the perspective that's being shared here? Shouldn't that be adopted into the biblical worldview? Well, no. And the reason being, um, you know, Satan is quoted in the Bible. Just because it's in the Bible, do we follow what Satan had to say? Of course not. Judas Iscariot's quoted in the Bible. His perspective is given. Do we follow the perspective of Judas Iscariot just because it's in the Bible? No. Sometimes the way that we learn is by looking at what's wrong, looking at what not to think, and then through that we're able to go, okay, well then that's the wrong perspective. I've sorted that out, and now I'm going to follow the right perspective. I thought of the example, actually, my little... Um, breakfast group of guys that meet. I have two different groups of guys that meet. I always want somebody that's kind of, I can bounce ideas off of. So this week's breakfast group of guys, if you ever want to come, we meet, you know, call me. Let me know, and I'll be happy to have you. But uh, this particular breakfast group of guys, I said to him, I said, you know what, this kind of reminded me of like, Maybe you got caught smoking by your dad when you were 14 years old or 18 years old or whatever, and you had your pack of cigarettes there, and what did your dad make you do? Smoke the whole pack while you're sitting there, right? And it's kind of like, I'm going to show you that this is, this is not the way you ought to go. So that's kind of what we're running into when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, so our text for today, we're just going to be looking at the first chapter. We'll be reading the first two verses. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here we go. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You may be seated. Like I said, not real friendly, not real a happy guy here. All right, so let's take a look at this. Let's go verse by verse here. The author of Ecclesiastes identifies himself as the son of David there in verse 1. David had many sons, but only two of his sons were ever king in Jerusalem. The first was Absalom. Absalom tried to usurp his father's throne. That didn't work out so well. His other son, who actually was a king in Jerusalem, was a guy by the name of Solomon. You may be more, more familiar with Solomon. Um, Solomon was responsible for writing the book of Proverbs in the Bible. He was also responsible for writing the book of Psalms in the Bible. And he was also responsible for writing a couple of the Psalms. And so historically, Solomon is regarded as the author of Ecclesiastes. That's how I'm going to regard this moving forward. However, Solomon never mentions himself by name in the book. Unlike in Proverbs, unlike in Song of Solomon, he doesn't mention himself here in Ecclesiastes. Rather, he refers to himself by the pseudonym Kohelet. And so you'll see that word Kohelet or the preacher a number of times. No, that's just Solomon referring to himself. Solomon has been doing some thinking. He writes this book toward the end of his life. He's an old man. I've got a 
painting, a picture of a painting here. This is a picture by Gustave Dore. He was an 1800s, 19th century painter, uh, painted prolifically scenes of the Bible and characters from the Bible. In this particular story, you can see his depiction of Solomon, old King Solomon. He has the scroll, the scroll or the papers of Ecclesiastes in his hand. He has some of the other papers that he's just kind of discarded off to the side that has been just writing his dribble. And so his face looks forlorn, right? His whole countenance looks like just he's drained, the vitality of life. The spark of life has left his, left his face, it's left his eyes. And so this is kind of Dewar's depiction of this depressed uh, king. Um, now the loss of vitality is not because Solomon is old. The loss of vitality, please hear this, is because Solomon has walked away from the God of his father, David. I've known plenty of 80-year-olds who have a lot more vitality than 20-some-year-olds that I know, and it's because those 80-year-olds are still pursuing and are intimately connected with and close with the God of the Bible. Solomon has walked away from the God of his father, David. Um, he began his reign on a high note. He made many improvements to the public city, uh, the public works of the city of Jerusalem. He constructed the temple of the Lord. The temple that he constructed was referred to for hundreds of years as Solomon's temple. He had this, uh, all this wisdom that God had granted to him. Foreign kings would come and wanted to just get his counsel, wanted to get his opinion on things. You know, hey, Solomon, here's, here's something I'm going through. What are your thoughts on that? And he would share with them the wisdom from on high. Everywhere Solomon went, people wanted a piece of him. Solomon became fabulously wealthy. He expanded the borders of Israel further than any king before him or any Israelite king after him. Again, he was walking closely and intimately with Yahweh. In his younger years, he wrote the Proverbs. The Proverbs are the perspective of a young father. That's why when you're reading through the Proverbs, you hear him say over and over again, my son, my son, my son. He's a young king, a young father, writing to his young son. He also writes the Song of Songs in his um, early days. It's clearly the product of a young and virile king. And now here he is in his old age. All that vitality has drained from his body. The spark has left his eye. Again, not because he's old, but because Solomon has walked away from the God of his father, David. And Dor, I think, does a good job of capturing Solomon at this point in his life. Somewhere along the way, Solomon began to make some compromises. He gathered into himself foreign wives. They enticed him into worshiping their false gods. Years of this wandering and rebellion, years of indulging in sin and ignoring his own good counsel, have produced the man who produced what we're about ready to read. I'm, I'm, I'm flying off the cuff here. I believe it was Socrates who said, find a good wife live a happy life, find a bad wife, become a philosopher. <laughs> if he wasn't the one that said it, uh, you correct me after the service. Uh, that brings us to verse 2. Verse 2 presents Solomon's philosophical conclusion. He's actually giving us his now perspective of life after years of experience of life, after years of indulging in sin, after years of walking away from the God of his father David, that produced the man that you see here. And then chapter two is his conclusion to the matter. The guy who's in that kind of low estate now presents his conclusion of everything. Let's take a look at verse two. He says, vanity of vanities, says the coalette. 
Vanity of vanities. Anytime in the Hebrew you have a repetition, it's done so as a literary device. He's trying to make a point here, trying to drive him the point. Basically, that this is the worst, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word in Hebrew that is translated vanity is the word hebel. Hebel literally means breath or vapor. And a breath or a vapor is something that's easily forgotten, right? I don't think about what I was breathing out or what we were breathing out while we were singing, right? Those things are just gone. They're a whisper, and it's gone, and nobody remembers that again. And so he's saying that's what life is. This is his perspective of life, that all of life had just become this meaninglessness. Here now and then gone, it's unremembered. The word hebel or vanity appears 37 times in 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. It's an important word. He looks across the horizontal plane. Remember, he's trying to find meaning. He's trying to find answers to the ultimate questions of life by looking out at life, by trying to fill that void with stuff from life. And he says the conclusion of it all is that there's no point, that life is just meaningless. Now, what follows in verses 3 through 11 is Solomon offering his evidence, his proof that he's right. So he's going to try to convince you, he's going to try to convince his audience that, hey, look, this conclusion that I've just drawn, this is the way it is. This is what life really is all, is all about. It's about nothing. Life is meaningless. And so he says, I'll prove my point. Verse 3, take for example, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Notice that Solomon calls work toil. In other words, toil is something frivolous, right? It's, it's, it's motion, it's activity with no point. And he's saying that's what work is. The philosopher looks out at you mowing your grass and says, why are you doing that? Don't you know it's going to grow back next week? This is the kind of guy we're dealing with. Remember, this is Eeyore. And so here he is. He's saying, you know, it, think about all the money that you spend. Think about all the time that you spend keeping that grass down at a certain level. If you were to just stop, guess what would happen? It would grow. It would do its own thing, and it's going to keep growing back unless somebody keeps cutting it. He's like, this is, this is a philosopher's definition of insanity. That's how he views life. Think about the laundry. You wash it. <laughs> you fold it. You put it away. You walk past the hamper the next day, and there it all is again. And you're like, this is, what are we doing here? Why, why am I, right? Well, I mean, think about it, though. Solomon, Solomon's a king. He has all this power. He has all these people who take care of all that stuff for him. I'm sure if the grass didn't get mowed and his laundry was getting pretty stinky, you know, that he would have, <clears throat> I'm sure he'd begun to appreciate those kinds of things. When I was in college, I graduated from college. I made a point, I never wanted to do laundry more than once a month, Okay. It's amazing Claire ever married me. You'll understand why here in a second. When I graduated from college, I had over 30 pairs of underwear. It needed to do laundry. I'd go to the store and buy more underwear, right? I had over 20 pairs of socks and 20 undershirts, all because I wanted to make sure, you know, I, if I got laundry like twice a semester, that was pretty good for me. I was really happy to do that. But uh, I didn't have that in here, didn't plan that. Maybe I should have thought a little bit better about what I was going to say this morning. Um, now, it's easy for Solomon, again, to say these things because he's king. He has people taking care of all this stuff for him. I'm sure if these things stopped getting done, he would appreciate the value of them getting done. But nevertheless, he's this, in the philosophical mode. Um, he's being his pessimistic self. Uh, you heard about the two pessimists who went to a party together, and instead of shaking hands, they just shook heads. 
right? Philosophers have been, identif- have, been, have been described as people who are unhappy more intelligently. That went over about as well as I thought it would go. Anyway, notice at the end of verse 3 that the phrase he uses there, under the sun, this phrase pops up, or under heaven, pops up tw- uh, 29 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And it's referring to, I mean, again, he's looking at life on the horizontal plane. He's stuck. He's not, not looking up here. He's stuck looking out here, trying to find the ultimate meaning of life. And so he keeps talking about life under the sun, life under the sun. Life under the sun, friends, if all we do is look out here is, is distressing. But life under the sun, S-O-N, is delightful. Solomon just hasn't engaged that perspective for a while. Verse 4, second purpose that, uh, second proof he wants to give us that all is vanity. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Here Solomon points out the cycle of life. There's birth, there's death. There's birth, there's death. And it just keeps going. On and on and on it goes. Did you know that today, according to the UN website, that's where I pulled this from, there are on average... 388,000 babies that will be born in the world. It's a lot of babies. Do you know that today in the world, on average, there'll be 166,000 people that will die on average? And Solomon's observing this, and he goes, life is just a cycle. Like, I'm here, and I'm going to die, and somebody's going to come along and replace me. Again, this is one of his proofs that life is just meaningless. All is vanity. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a famous rock song inspired by the words of Ecclesiastes. Actually, there are several. And it's no surprise that rock stars, secularists, would quote from this kind of a perspective because it's a perspective of not the Bible, but of secular humanism trying to make sense out of life out here on the horizontal plane. And the song goes like this, see if you, if you recognize these lyrics. Don't hang on, nothing lasts forever, but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. Made famous by the band? Kansas, very good. All right, inspired by Ecclesiastes, these verses here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 5. The third reason why all is vanity, verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and it returns back. Actually, in the Hebrew there, it literally means it came panting on its way back, ran back to where it was supposed to go, and it came panting to the place where it uh, rises. Again, life is just a big cycle. Why don't y'all wake up and see that, is Solomon's cry. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south, blows to the north. Around and around the wind goes. Creation is just a cycle, people, and we're in it, and we're just part of the cycle. That's all it is. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Have you ever noticed that? The volume of water passing off of the land through the rivers into the oceans day after day, hour after hour, year after year, and the sea just kind of holds steady. 
Solomon is observing the hydrological cycle. He's thinking about how the streams feed into the rivers, the rivers feed into the ocean, the ocean waters evaporate into clouds. Those clouds are blown back over the land by the wind, and then those clouds release their rain. The water falls into the stream, and over and over, the cycle just continues. Pointless. When you say, it's just meaningless. It just goes on and on. Verse 8. Two more evidences to support his conclusion. Middle of verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You watch a movie, you watch it again. Our family likes watching Dude Perfect. Don't judge me. They're funny. And we watch the same stuff. I mean, they only got so much content online, right? So you watch the same stuff over, and you have movies that you love watching. It's almost Christmas time. You're probably going to watch Elf, right? You're probably going to watch It's a Wonderful Life. But you know the ending. Why do you watch it over and over again, says the philosopher, right? What's the point of all of this? Because your eye is never satisfied, right? You hear these songs, Right? Your ear, it, it, it hears this stuff, but it's never filled. It's never satisfied. You hear this song for the first time. I really like that song. Put that in my playlist. And you play it over and over again. Every day when you're riding down the road, here comes the same song. Every Saturday night, we hear somehow Willie Nelson appears on the radio. I don't know how that works. But anyhow, and it's like the same stuff over and over and over again. And he's, he's saying, hey, look, you're never satisfied. The eye is never satisfied. The ear is never filled. It's never satisfied. Why? Because we are just like the cycle of water. We are just like the cycle of the sun. We are just like the cycle of the wind. We are never satisfied. We are hamsters on a wheel. This is this guy's perspective of life. Verse 9. Here's the conclusion of the matter. What has been is what will be. What has been done It'll be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Essentially, Solomon's argument is that if we look at creation, we see monotony. We see purposelessness. It just keeps regurgitating itself over and over. It's like somebody just hit the repeat button at the end of the day and start all over again. When he looks at creation, he just sees the cycle repeating itself over and over again. The sun rises, the sun sets, the sun rises again the next day. Streams pour into the ocean, the streams fill back up again. Creation is going nowhere, nor are we. The same monotony can be found in our lives. We are part of the cycle, birth and death, birth and death. We watch the same movies, we listen to the same songs, we mow the grass, we do the laundry. There seems to be no point to creation. We as human beings are as an extension of creation. There's no point to us either. Other people are going to come along behind us. There's nothing new, friends, under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You say, Eeyore, are you going to have a good day today? I don't expect so. All right. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. Is Solomon right? I mean, he seems pretty passionate. He is being very passionate about this perspective. Is he right? Well, no. <laughs> He's horribly wrong. Um, you say, well, then what difference does any of this make to me, right? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let's make sure that we know why Solomon is wrong. I'm going to give you two reasons why it's wrong, and in giving you these two reasons, I'm going to tell you what difference this makes, okay? Hang with me. 
Flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, again, you can follow along with us on the screen. This is the account of the transfiguration. Jesus is up on this mountain north of the Sea of Galilee. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. They go up there. He pulls back his veil, the skin. I don't know how he did that, but anyhow, his glory was revealed, right? His glory was on the inside, and he allowed his glory to be shown to Peter, James, and John. While he's standing there, Moses drops down out of the sky, boom. Elijah drops down out of the sky, boom, and he starts having a conversation with Moses and with Elijah. Luke chapter 9 and verse 29. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. There's the glory. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him. Their names are Moses and Elijah. Now, up to this incident in the New Testament, this one guy, Moses over here, has been dead for 1,200, maybe 1,300 years. The other guy, Elijah, he's been dead for 700 plus years. And yet, here they are with their identities intact, still recognizable, They didn't just blend off into the raindrops of the ocean or into the raindrops of the streams. Their identities are intact. And here they are having a conversation with Jesus. So it appears, it appears that we are not part of the cycle after all. Same observation can be made over in Luke chapter 16. Jesus gives an account of the afterlife there of a couple of people who experience it. Some believe this to be a story. I believe this to be Jesus recounting an actual event. Luke chapter 16 and verse 20. Either way, the truth of what Jesus is teaching here is for us. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Skip forward to verse 22. The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Last verse, verse 24. And the rich man called out. Remember, this is an episode of the afterlife. The rich man is in hell. He's not in hell because he was rich. He's in hell because he had rejected the son. And he cries out to some people that are in heaven. One of them is Abraham. Again, there is Abraham. His identity his personhood, his, the character, the person of Abraham intact in the afterlife. And he cries out to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, have Lazarus, that guy who used to sit at my table and collect the scraps that fell from my table, have Lazarus go and do some things for me. Again, both of them, their identity, their personhood, still intact in the afterlife. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, human life is not cyclical. People may repeat what we have done. It is a truism that there is nothing new under the sun. As you get older, you'll learn that more is is true. But it is not true that human beings are akin to raindrops. We are, God made us as eternal beings that when we breathe out the last breath of this life, we awake to the afterlife. You see, when we engage the vertical plane, theology, 
suddenly what appeared as excruciatingly pointless and meaningless, and I just see it just the thing just keeps going and going, and there's no point to any of this. Hamsters on the wheel. Suddenly, when we engage theology, life on the vertical plane, we realize that what is happening in this life is creating memories and creating investments that will last forever. It was Corey Tenboom, got a slide for you here, the Holocaust survivor who said, Look outward, be distressed. Been watching the news lately? Look inward, be depressed. The paralysis of self analysis. Look to Jesus, life on the vertical plane, be at rest. So that's the first reason why Solomon was wrong. He had a view of human life as terminating at death. The Bible teaches to the contrary that human life goes on forever and ever. We are created not as mortal beings, but the mortal will take on immortality. What difference does that make to your life and to mine? Well, if human beings are eternal beings, as Jesus and the Bible teach then that means I should be motivated to want to ensure my experience of the afterlife is as happy an experience as it possibly can be. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father who is in heaven. No one comes to heaven but through me. Friends, Jesus is the way to a happy afterlife. And he proved it by himself rising from the dead. If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Think about what Jesus is offering you. He is offering you a happy and joyful experience of the afterlife in heaven. Something for you to think about. The second reason why Solomon is wrong is because what Solomon observes as monotony, water runs into the stream, streams runs in the river, river runs into the ocean, the whole cycle repeats itself, the wind, here it comes and there it goes. What he um, observes as monotony from a different perspective is actually order and design. Let me explain. Back in 2004, two biologists wrote a book called The Privileged Planet. Got a little picture for you here. Many of their atheist colleagues looked at life on earth and said, what a wonderful accident. That's the perspective. If God is not a part of this, of the natural, if God's not responsible for any of this, then this is all just an accident. In other words, the atheist sees life on earth as just a coincidence. But the authors, two Christian authors of the Privileged Planet said, when you stop and objectively consider all the facts... That doesn't look like an accident at all. For example, do you think that it's an accident? A couple facts here. Do you think it's an accident that the earth is 93 million miles away from the sun? Any closer, it'd be too hot to live on. Any further away, it'd be too cold to live on. The sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Venus is completely uninhabitable, again, too hot. The warmest places on Mars uh, would have snow and ice collecting on them. The earth is the perfect distance from the sun for life to exist. Do you think it's an accident that the earth is spinning 1,000 miles an hour 
and that the earth, because of its speed, turns 365 and one-third times on its axis as it makes its yearly revolution around the sun. You say, well, why couldn't it just turn 30 times in its uh, revolution around the sun? What if the earth slowed down to like 100 miles an hour instead of 1,000 miles an hour? Well, if that happened, then the days would be 10 times longer, and the nights would be 10 times longer, and the difference between day and night would be burning and freezing to death. Privileged planet. What about the tilt of the Earth's axis? Do you suppose that's an accident? That the Earth is tilted 23 and one-third degrees on its axis toward the sun. The result is that beautiful balance of the four seasons that we're experiencing even now. Do you think it's an accident that our atmosphere has a perfect balance of oxygen to nitrogen? 79% to 20% plus 1% of some uh, variable gases. What was it? If it was 50 to 50, oxygen to nitrogen, then the first nut who lit a match would just poof, and the whole place would blow up, right? It would all catch on fire. We have a perfect balance for our biosphere to exist. Might we suppose that that is just an accident? What about the ocean depths and dimensions? Do you suppose those are an accident? Did you know that if the oceans were half their present size, much of the earth would be a desert? We'd have a quarter of the rainfall that we experience now. And if the oceans were only one-eighth uh, larger, we'd have four times the amount of rainfall that we have, and life on earth would be uninhabitable because the place would be a swamp. You see, there are two ways of looking at these facts. Solomon, who had walked away from the God of his father David, no longer brought the vertical perspective into his understanding of the ultimate questions of life. He saw life as an accident when he looked out at creation. He saw creation as monotonous, a universe that had no purpose. It was just continually doing its thing out there. Day after day, somebody hitting the repeat button. The believer, on the other hand, looks at the seemingly impossible coincidences for life on earth. And instead of concluding that this is all just an accident, instead sees order and sees design the hand of an almighty creator who built a universe perfectly situated for your life and for mine. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, Jeremiah 31 and verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, is his name. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Friends, if we live in a designed universe, then that means the designer had your life in mind. Life is not meaningless. All is not vanity. Your life has purpose and meaning and design just like the universe that we are a part of. The psalmist David, get this, the psalmist David, Solomon's father, said this. Psalm 139 and verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, O Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Here's my question, and I'm going to close with this. Who have you been listening to lately? The God of your father? The God of the Bible? 
Or have you allowed thoughts of life on this horizontal plane that are making vain attempts to explain this, your life and mine? Have those thoughts crept in? One leads to vanity of vanity. All is vanity. The other perspective leads to, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for what your word does. Week in and week out, we are given a perspective of life, a perspective of this world, a perspective of the man or woman who is staring us back in the mirror. It is your perspective. Lord, may we hear your truth. May it penetrate our ears this morning. May it penetrate our hearts. And may we, Lord, because we have sat under the teaching of the truth of the Word of God this morning, never be the same. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. You made a great sacrifice in order to establish a relationship with us, one that will last forever. Lord, as we share these symbols of your sacrifice, Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our heart. Meet us where we are living. Answer our questions. Reassure us where we have doubts. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.